You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 103. Today, I talk with Dr. Jenny Ekstrom. We talk about this phenomenon of when you think no one has your back. Have you ever experienced this, where you look around and no one seems to be supporting you? She talks about her experience and her tips for if you're ever in this position. If you want more tips on how to feel safe at work, go to bosssurgery.com and download Feeling Safe at Work. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. Have you ever experienced meeting people online and feeling like you're great, wonderful friends. And then you all of a sudden realize you never actually met yet. Well, that is my guest today. So this is Dr. Jenny Ekstrom. We have been in the same circles for, I don't even know how long. So I'm so excited to have her come on and she's going to share with us, I think a really important lesson about what happens when you feel like no one has your back and what do you do when this feeling arises? And she's going to have some really surprising insights into this. So let me tell you a little bit about her. She is a family practice physician. She has been in private practice for 17 years. So she also has a lot of insights about private practice and how to succeed. I'm really excited to hear uh, a lot more about her. But first, Jenny, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, Amy. Thank you so much. My name is Jenny Ekstrom. I am a private practice family physician. I have been practicing for 17 years in the same practice in a small town in Northwest Montana, incidentally, about 20 minutes from where I grew up, from where my childhood home is. And in that, in practicing in my own community, it has really allowed me to see a lot of, I think, unique things that happen in private medicine, when you come back with a degree, you're a different person and really trying to reconcile how you interact with your community with, with a different role. Right. So take us through this time when you felt like people didn't have your back. Cause I think all of us can really relate to this, especially when you're dealing with other people, things come up. It, we have difficult jobs for sure. And we always have this sense that people are going to help us out. They're going to be there for us. And inevitably, someone has experienced the disappointment of the thoughts we're telling ourselves that people are not there for us. So tell us a little about the story in your specific circumstance. I think that would be really enlightening. Yeah. Well, I think it, it actually starts with really from a place of understanding that is for a lot of type A individuals, we are very feedback driven. We are looking for validation and that's what actually helped propel us through undergrad and med school and residency and, and really putting ourselves in situations that a lot of people would say, this is crazy. Why are you working this many hours? And then you get into private practice and there really isn't any of that feedback. And so you think that if I do all the things, if I do obstetrics and I sign on for additional urgent care shifts, and if I take care of the patients really well in the hospital and see my practice, that somebody's going to come back and pat you on the head and say, you're doing a really great job. And in the absence of that, 
sometimes what happens is we tell ourselves a different story. And that was something that truly happened with me. And I found that I was more hypersensitive to any sort of feedback. I was very hypercritical of myself. And this ended up in a situation where I sort of got a little crosswise with an administrator and felt a little misunderstood and expected that because my partnership knew who I was, that they would sort of close ranks and, and understand and say, we recognize this and you'll be okay. And instead that sighting went not in my favor. And I really felt like they didn't have my back. And this is a group of people that I've worked with and I've continued to work with. And I just couldn't understand why they wouldn't support me. And and that was a story that I actually carried for a decade. It wasn't a practice I wanted to leave. This was my hometown. I really wanted to succeed. I really loved my patient population, but really found myself in this place of a lot of of pain and, and a lot of that self-inflicted because of the story I was telling myself. These are really good people. We all are caring for a population in a way that really came from a place of consensus. And so what I recognize, and this is over 10 years of, of reflection, is really that that story I was telling of myself about people not having my back was really coming from within. And that was a battle that nobody else could fight for me. It was really one that I had to tackle on my own. Yes. And let's start from the very beginning. So I know when you went into your practice and a lot of people are going to resonate with this. So you're a woman and you go to a practice and you have kids and the expectation is that we must do all the things at home, that whole second shift thing. And we must do everything that our male partners do. We love them. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they have their own pressures too. But what's happening is like it goes into this sort of understanding that we have. Like if I do all the things that they do, then everything is going to be okay. And I will get appreciated. So first starts with that expectation. If I do all the things, everyone will appreciate it. And of course, what was your experience when you did all the things And what was the feedback that you got from that? It actually, if anything, was an absence of feedback, right? It was just like, this is what we do, right? And anytime there was a new role that came down, like, hey, the school needs a medical director for their school nurse. This would be a good practice builder for you. Rather than saying, I have two babies at home. I'm still nursing. I'm still pumping. I'm still doing OB. It was like, okay, I guess that's what I do to be a good partner, right? That to be a good partner really was a driving force for me, expecting that if I did all the things, then I would get that validation back. And it was just, no, this is what we do. Yes. I mean, that's the first hit that we get is when we think we do all the things, we do not get the feedback and response to that. And the first thing we tell ourselves is they are not appreciating me. So the first hit to no one has my back. Mm-hmm. And the second is this thing, why are they even asking me to do this medical directorship? Don't they know I have two kids at home? Don't they see all the things that I'm doing? So the second thing that we tell ourselves is, Why are they even asking? Well, we're mad at people for asking us to do something because we think they should have our back and not ask us to do it. Don't they see everything we're doing? (laughs) Right. And I shared with you earlier and you pointed out the the reference, Medicine, a Jealous Mistress. And I didn't recognize that I needed to attribute that to Osler, but I must have heard it and it must have resonated with me because it really felt like it 
it was never going to be something that was fully satisfied. But I didn't feel like I had the right or the authority to set boundaries, to say this is enough. Yes. We already start to see that the person who needs to have our back is us and we are not doing it. And we're not doing it for many different reasons. I mean, there's a reason that this uh, quote has stayed the test of time. Sir William Osser said, medicine is a jealous mistress. She will be satisfied with no less. And so this is not a gender thing. This is the fact that we cannot know enough. We cannot do enough. That is, I think, the underlying stress of all physicians is that we will never be able to do enough to create a satisfaction unless we decide what satisfaction is. And that expectation that someone else is going to come in and say, you've done enough. This is too much. It's okay for you to make changes that work for you. Right. There was a time I have chronic migraines and I ended up having to stop do doing OB because I could not be up in the middle of the night. You know, in residency, we had work hours that allowed us to, if you were up all night, you didn't work the next day. Right. But in private practice, that didn't exist. You still had a panel of 20 patients that needed to see you the next day. And so in retrospect, that may have been one place where I did feel like I could make some decisions for myself, but only because it wasn't sustainable. I couldn't work with that. It's, but it's even funny. that was explaining, justifying why, why I couldn't do this anymore. Yes. Oh, I, I love it. I'm sure that caused you uh, no small amount of stress. So our body is saying this, I'm having my back because we cannot do this anymore. <laughs> like we physically cannot do this anymore. But still, there's that urge to explain and worry and things like that, too, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. Explaining to the the partners that still wanted to do OB and I couldn't be a part of that call pool, explaining to patients why I couldn't deliver their next baby. And, you know, there's a lot of guilt that comes with that because we are taught that patients' needs come ahead of ours. So even setting boundaries for ourselves becomes a source of shame. Yeah. And there's something really great about telling people, I am the one who does everything for everybody that we sort of buy into that persona. And until you start realizing, I actually cannot be everything for everybody. There's actually a limit that I'm now starting to realize that I have to start acknowledging. And it's not easy for any of us to acknowledge those limits. Exactly, exactly. Well, I know that you love your partners and you have great partners. So when you had this interaction with an administrator, and we don't have to have any details because everybody can relate to this of when you start feeling like the outside in your practice, where something happens, you look around like, of course, they're going to agree with me. This is obvious. And another third party comes in, administrator or whatever, and something happens to where you, all of a sudden you start realizing, wait a minute, why isn't everyone rushing to my defense? Why isn't everyone saying, of course, this is it. All of a sudden we start to feel on the outside and isolated. So take us through kind of generically, because again, I think everyone's going to relate to this. And yours was even easier to see because you liked your partners. So you couldn't make them villains because you already knew that they weren't. So how did you start evolving your thought process on, on dealing with when you feel like no one has your back? Right. And so initially, this was way back in the early days of physician coaching, right? And so I got a postcard from a physician. They said, I'm doing coaching. I'm like, well, clearly that's what I'll do. I'll fix it. 
I'll fix it. I'll find the problem and I'll fix it because that's what we do. We get more information and we solve problems. And so what came out of that first coaching relationship was, well, you're giving your power away. Like, okay, I'm giving my power away, but and, and I could see how that was happening because I would walk in the room and rather than walking in the room with confidence, it would be like something bad that that sense of foreboding that that somehow I was going to be found out. Right. And this is all an inner dialogue going on at that point. And then, so that didn't really get me to the place. And so then there was a physician leadership program that they were doing in our state. I'm like, that will be the thing that will give me all all the information. And it even provided a before and after survey. So I sent that out to all the partners and administrators because I was like, I will prove to them. I will prove to them that I can get better. I can be what they need. Again, all of this, just another way of me giving away the power. And when those, when those surveys came back again, looking for my vindication of, see, I'm better. One of the responses, one of the questions was, what do you admire about this person? And one of the responses was, I don't admire anything about this person. So that became a part of that reel. That was mixed in with other positive statements and things that are encouraging, but our brains or my brain was trained to look for all the evidence of why I didn't deserve anyone to have my back. All the evidence of why I deserve to stay in this place of suffering, right? And so- It wasn't until several years later that I did another coaching program. And and as I was telling the same story, they didn't have my back. That was just the story I continued to tell myself. This coach said, but what if you had your own back? Mm -hmm. What if I had my own back? What if walking into that room, I stood behind myself and said, you deserve to be here your voice is important, your opinion is important. And regardless of what gets said around you, what if you can have control of that conversation that's going on in here? Because so much of this battle was internal. It had nothing to do with all those people around me. It had to do with really understanding that language, taking it from one that was critical to one that was just words. It was just a conversation and that I could then choose what to do with that information. And that was honestly life-changing for me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting when we think about it because we walk into a room and we feel uncomfortable in that room and we look around and saying, why isn't anyone making me feel more comfortable? (laughs) Whereas when you say it in that way, it sounds ridiculous, right? Like we're now giving the power for our feelings about ourselves to someone in a room that one doesn't know they're supposed to very annoying. And and two is like, we don't exactly even know if they know how to do that. It's a lot of pressure on them. It's asking something of someone else that we could do for ourselves. So there was a life-changing thought that someone offered me when, gosh, it was early on in my attending hood. When I walked into a room, I used to worry about what people think about me, but now I walk into the room and wonder what I think about them. And it was interesting because I stopped worrying about what people thought about me. And I asked, what do I think about me? And when I did, I'm like, I guess I'm fine. I mean, right where I'm supposed to be, not perfect. And I'm okay with that. And so then I started looking around and what happens is now my attention is out on other people and I'm able to be 
be there for other people. Now I can create the environment where they can feel more comfortable and nothing makes you like raise in esteem as people not having to worry about making you happy. (laughs) Well, and I would even take that one step further because I still get that same sort of flood, whether it's a flood of shame, whether it's a flood of should I be here, just that overwhelming activation, some people call it trigger. Again, I try to get away from words that feel charged. So activation feels more comfortable for me. Um, But I expect that overwhelm. And I know that if I just sit with it, that it'll pass, right? When I walk into a room where I don't know my standing, it's going to be there. And I just sort of welcome it. Like, okay, I know that I'm in a new situation and that's okay. And I can call it out. And then I can also say with that, what else could these feelings mean? Right. I bet looking in the same way as you looking around that room, I'm not the only person who feels uncomfortable or uncertain about how this is going to go. Yes. And when we talk about that internal dialogue, you know, we think that there's just one voice. And in my boss book, I talked about the the itty bitty shitty committee. There's a whole group of people. And and we'll channel another quote uh, that I go back to all the time from Walt Whitman is the, I contain multitudes. (laughs) So there is, I mean, there's not usually just one voice of like, you're not adequate. I mean, sometimes there's a whole party of people saying, oh, and then there's this and there's this, and they're happy to provide me with all kinds of evidence of why this is true. So when you start tuning into these voices that, that come up for you, you start to realize that these are actually parts of us that we're, that we're always thinking about. And so if you do not address this internal dialogue at all aspects, when you're in the quiet, when you're busy, things like that, especially more ahead of time, when you start to get to know what you're internally thinking, then you'll know exactly what to address. So I'm feeling a little insecure when I walk into M&M. Why is that? Well, because his voice says you're a terrible surgeon because something happened, which was not even necessarily unexpected. So when we start realizing, oh, there's that voice again telling me I did something wrong. Well, let me think about it. Ask myself if I did. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think recognizing that those voices come from a place of protection. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing because there was a time when that word of caution would have been protective, right? It And so I think recognizing and having just some compassion for ourselves when those, when those show up, but then also being able to say, you know, what else could this mean, right? You walking into that M&M may mean, it, like for me walking into that M&M, even if I wasn't on the list and be like, well, maybe they'll bring something up about me, right? <laughs> just that, that self-centric and really being able to say, this isn't about this isn't about you. Not everything in this space is about you. And you don't need to interpret everything in your environment as a reflection on your value or worth as a physician, as a mother, as a partner. Yeah. And as I've evolved over the last few years, that quote has actually helped me a little bit more observe myself because not only it's like I would walk into a room not thinking about me, I think about other people, but I'm also like thinking of me like on the outside, I then put myself in a position of a dispassionate observer of what my experience is. So now I can look at myself from afar without judgment and say, okay, well, how, how did I do this case? And what would I do differently? And if I were, if this were someone else, what would I have expected them to do? And creating that space to where we're allowed to observe ourselves is being the person that we are looking for someone else to be. There's so much truth in that, right? I think when we get to that place where we could treat ourselves with the compassion we would afford someone else, that's huge. 
And I think asking ourselves, what are we expecting? Let's say in this instance, what are what am I expecting my partner to do? And in that moment, what were you expecting your partners to do? I think it really was expecting them to recognize the the just my integrity, right? That although this situation maybe wasn't me showing up as my best self, that wasn't a reflection of who I was as a person. And I think it's giving me the benefit of the doubt, right? And, and again, it was handing all of that power right on over. And and it's not their responsibility. That was not their job, right? And, and nobody grows in that instance, right? Because we're not getting what we need. They're not sure why we feel this the way that we do. What happens is, is like this massive understanding as we mind read and make assumptions about what should and should have should not have been done. And I think that we can control narratives in a lot of ways and allow some of these long-term things to change. I just had a meeting recently, a few months ago, about the call schedule, something like that. And there, there was some mistake and the mistake was mine. I asked someone to cover and we'd already had someone covering and things like that. And there was like a big hubbaloo of that because I was asking for something different. This was supposed to be like the distractor. And I just remember like clear as a bell saying, I'm allowed to make mistakes. And it's so funny because like the truth of that rang through because I had already dealt with the shame of making a mistake. I mean, it wasn't a big mistake, but you know, some people got upset about it. I didn't exactly understand why, but I was like, why am I upset about this? It's like, cause I, I made an error. Like I should have written this down and I didn't realize someone had asked, but for me in that meeting to say, I can make mistakes and, and right. with hundred percent certainty, know that that was true. And that was authentic. And I wasn't fighting my internal dialogue to do that is it's funny because when I said that there was like crickets, like, yeah, I mean, what's someone going to say about that? We all make mistakes. So by like allowing it to be like, I wanted to be forgiven for making a mistake. So I had already forgiven myself and then I announced it and everyone's like, Oh, okay. Well, right. Exactly. I like to say in that situation, like, Oh, bummer. I was human. Shoot. Isn't it great that there's another example that I'm human. Yeah. (laughs) I don't do everything perfectly. (laughs) So what happens is like we reach next level. So not only are we not expecting other people to make us feel better, once we do the job and do the work of making ourselves feel better, then we are able and accessible to be there for other people. And what that does is it makes us leaders. So rather than worrying about other people boosting us up, we have decided to boost ourselves up and we create the environment to where everyone can potentially um, elevate uh, by giving them permission to do what's probably what in the back of their mind. And, and another good example is that internal dialogue of, I don't want to work this much. But the problem is, is if we create this as a standard where my internal dialogue says, I am lazy if I don't do all of this, then we create the environment where everyone is burning themselves out. And I think that's one nice thing about lately is that we're all kind of starting this dialogue of like, you know, we actually don't have to do all that. I mean, we don't have to like kill ourselves which is like mind-blowing concept for a lot of us. <laughs> or just recognizing our limitations. And my limitations may be different than your limitations. They may be different from my partner who practices in the pod next to me, right? And that is okay. Like this is not a competition and really being able to take away, again, that all drives at that need to that compare and despair piece. Um, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. 
it's hard because we look at our jobs and saying, why does not my job not have my back? Why are they asking me to do all of this stuff? And it's another one of those examples where I'm asking my job to do the work that I need to do. I need to be able to create this boundary of saying, doing this much stuff is a little bit too much for me. I don't think this is going to work. So we have to battle that internal dialogue of I'm lazy. They're going to be disappointed. What's wrong with me? They wouldn't do this. And now they're going to think bad of me. Now I can't be trusted. Now I can't have any leadership positions. I could go on. (laughs) And you're describing the first probably 15 years of my practice, right? Because we want to, do, I, again, I think we we go into this role really wanting to care for and please people. And unfortunately, that gets taken advantage of. Yes. So, and it may even get taken advantage of by ourselves because we don't say what's realistic for me. So yes. I think the place where I found that I had truly arrived was a situation then again about a year ago when words were said and the me of past would have taken that as you're worthless and the me understanding that other people get to have words, but those words don't need to be truth was me being able to say, that is not my battle. Those are not my circus. That's not my circus. Those aren't my monkeys. Like you get to say those things, but I get to choose whether or not that's true for me. And that was when I really knew I had switched that space of being driven by that inner critic and really being able to just be more aware of how words affected me and the control that I had over that. And this goes into a really valuable lesson when it comes to negotiating for what you want. So someone comes up and tells you something and our thought is like, no, that's dumb. How could they possibly ask me that? But the the very first thing is, I mean, anyone's allowed to ask whatever they want, but Who knows if that's what they actually mean? Maybe they don't know. When we stop thinking that they're doing something to us, we're now in a position of saying, maybe I should ask more questions. Maybe they just don't know. And what happens is the more questions that we ask them, they have to think and rephrase the request. And they rephrase it based on where we're guiding them. So the most important negotiation that happens with other people is within their mind, not yours. And how you do this is you create the environment where they can question, and then you move closer to a more common thing that that works for both people. This is not a manipulation. This is really for understanding that they just don't know. I'll help them. And then I will put myself in a position where I listen to them and they can help me. And that's what gets us to a place of getting really what we want. And that comes to recognizing that all this thing about overworking and you know people feeling bad this is universal everybody has the same common voice because this is what society offers us so we have to be able to help work on our own suggestions but help understand that other people have these similar ones that need some help with i love it i love it and and the piece that i would add to that is i think the more that we can set boundaries recognize that we are worthy of boundaries and then hold to those boundaries, then it it helps when people are asking questions of us, then they have a better idea of what may be acceptable in our world versus when we're always saying yes and then freak out and say, oh, I can't do this. Nobody knows how to really approach you. Yeah. So let's go back to that moment in time. And speaking of reality, 
So now we've discovered we need to have our own back. How has that experience been for you? <laughs> I'm so, guessing not rainbows, unicorns, and all things. Everything's so easy now. I'm guessing no. <laughs> and again, you're absolutely right. I mean, I find that I have my own back a lot better when I'm rested and fed and have taken care of myself. So that that's probably one of the biggest lessons is really making sure that what I'm doing outside of my time in medicine is keeping me happy and healthy and really making that a priority. The other is that when, and this has come up and and things do come up where you're in a, in a board meeting and something is said, and it may be critical. And again, that flood comes and then being able to say, listen, I don't know that that was a fair statement and this is why, and this is how I think we should proceed, right? And in the past, I wouldn't have had that capability to do that in that real time. And so so when that did happen and it, and it happened in a meeting, you know, six or eight months ago, and I had been sharing with another administrator that I'd been working through this process and actually ended up getting some feedback. Like, I really appreciated how you handled that, how you addressed that and and handled that colleague in a very professional way. And so that to me really just confirmed that this battle that I'm fighting is a worthy one and it helps everyone around us. Yeah, it really does. And we can also share with other people that when we start having boundaries and listening to internal dialogue and doing the work, that this is not always easy. It's uncomfortable to hold boundaries, but in the end, the overall discomfort is a whole lot less than not upholding those things. And it's difficult for us to be around people if we're under a lot of pressure to, or they're under a lot of pressure to make us happy too. So we start realizing when I stop putting pressure on people because I'm answering the questions that I have, that my interactions go a lot easier. So it may be a little uncomfortable at first, but certainly the long-term consequences are so much greater. Or when our when our partners recognize that they don't have to tiptoe around us, not knowing what might be the ultimate trigger, Right. So that's, that's, I think, where we reach that next level where I can show up as, you know, confident and secure in myself and, and not be a liability, be an asset and not a liability. That's a really great point, because what happens when we are so offended by everyone around us, because they think that we don't have our back, they are tiptoeing around us. So it actually is us now. I mean, we have created an environment where they do have to be uncomfortable around us. And part of the awareness is having to have a lot of self-compassion for ourselves. It's like, yeah, I, I kind of am the problem. <laughs> Very awkward. <laughs> well, and then owning that. And and so it's also owning that when we don't show up as our best selves, coming back and saying, I recognize I didn't show up as my best self. And that owning that rather than hiding and having that be something that causes more shame. Right. So now we have to like, navigate this period of growth from a position of shame, not an easy thing to do. But once you start making some progress towards that, then the shame becomes less, the, the beating ourselves up becomes less. And this is why a lot of times it is helpful to navigate this with a coach who can point out the fact that all of this is normal. The feelings of shame are normal, feeling of regret of acting in ways that now we see it and we realize we could have done things differently, that there's nothing actually, nothing has gone wrong. Everything is still going to be fine. That coming out of that river of misery is normal. (laughs) And recognizing that there are still going to be places that are going to trip us up. 
there's still going to be those landmines that we can't foresee. And so then really being able to approach ourselves with, from a place of compassion, right? Of course you responded that way and that's okay. And you're human. And how do we move forward? Yes. And Chris and Neff has written a lot on fear, self-compassion of mm-hmm. like the ability to stop and say, Oh, well, here it is. There's shame. I'm going to feel it really a little bit and having talking kind to kindly to ourselves, and then common humanity saying, I'm feeling shame, but I know other people would in the same situation too. Like I'm not unique. I'm not alone. I'm not isolated. So to be able to maintain self-compassion and get us out of that shame, which is isolating, which is exactly what the worry that people don't have our back is. It puts us isolated and that's where shame grows. So the very first thing is realizing that they're not behaving the way I think, but I can still be a part of this group and I can still have love for myself and love for them and navigate this challenge that I'm having without being alone. I love all of it. (laughs) Right. So tell me a little bit about simplified like 17 years in like a couple succinct sentences. And so, but my thing is if by talking about this, someone else earlier in their career can see some of their self in my story or in your story and say, I'm not alone. I thought I was the only person that felt this way. I thought everybody else had all of their stuff together and I'm the only person just barely holding on here. I think the power in sharing our story is that we can dispel that shame. We can dispel that isolation. So that's really why I show up and I'm so so happy to be here with you today for that reason. I'm so glad you are too. And the one bad thing about this, I actually called it something, it's called the coaching backslide, is when you get coaching and you realize you see it and you look at like, just like you said, like 17 years, I could have figured this out. And so there's almost like a little bit of regret of saying like, I, I could have had a so much better life, but that I always tell people when you look back at your past, you have this glass wall that you are not allowed to bridge said glass wall. You're simply telling the story of what your past is and not allowing yourself to, or not putting yourself in a position where you judge yourself. It's simply an observation of what has already happened and you can never go back and change. But (laughs) yeah, we can't argue with the past. We always lose. (laughs) Exactly. So tell us a little bit more about some of the other adventures. I know we haven't really covered this, but I know that you have some grand ideas about helping people in private practice and tell us a little bit more about the reason why this is important to you. Well, so again, I think that recognizing the importance of community, you know, again, I'm fortunate to have a group of amazing partners, but I also recognize that having that support and having community is not really their responsibility. And so because of that, I've I've intentionally sought out other groups to provide that support. And as I've done that, I've I found that there is in the world of private practice, there's not a lot of us. I think it's like 30% is private practice. The other 70% is hospital employed. And so I really think that that there's an opportunity in that realm of private practice to really create a support. And there are a lot of supports that already exist. There's big Facebook groups and, and things like that. And that's awesome. And my feeling is that all of us are going to find something that's going to resonate with us in a different setting. And so to that to that result, I am creating a a community for private practice physicians, whether they're in brick and mortar practices, whether during direct primary care or concierge or telemedicine. I just think it's an opportunity for us to 
create another community in a place where we can be, instead of being isolated, we can come and have that support. So I have for the last several years been on on Facebook and Instagram as Uncluttered Mind MD. I'm super excited about real estate. So you'll see me talking about that a lot. And again, this is another community that that I am creating. And so if there's any of your listeners who are interested, they can reach out to me in one of those forums, either Facebook or um, through Instagram, or I'm also at Uncluttered at gmail.com. Um, because again, I think we all deserve community. We all deserve that support. I completely agree. And it is absent in private practice to having the mastermind community. It is easy to feel isolated and alone in private practice because a lot of times we're doing this in small groups or even in, in bigger groups who may not have as uh, someone who's helping us as much with the mental drama that is associated with private practice. Being in private practice, I totally get this. And there are Facebook groups where I've gotten information from, but not all the things that I know that we really need to deal with, which is the dealing with the money shifts and the scarcity and like expenses increasing and our income decreasing. And there's a lot of this aspects that are really helpful to help support each other. So I'm really glad that you're doing a community like that. I think it's really well needed. Now, so people can find you at Uncluttered Mind MD um, on Instagram. That's where I found you. And then of course, we've been in some similar Facebook groups and things like that. So I encourage everyone to reach out to Dr. Jenny Ekstrom, the Uncluttered Mind MD about issues like private practice, but then also check out her real estate stuff, which we haven't had time to talk about. But I do think I'm so glad you came on because I really think that talking about no one has my back is a really common uh, thing that especially early on in, in practice that we have uh, going on in the back of our mind. Thank you so much. It's been an, a real pleasure. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.